Today, I'm talking to Scott Payne with more than 20 years of experience in home building and real estate. He served as the vice president of new home sales at his previous brokerage, national vice president of sales operations for a Fortune 500 builder, and Charlotte division president for a major regional builder. Scott learned the business and was leading national companies through the Great Recession, from the terrible downturn to success. Scott not only knows the builder business, he knows how to bring solutions and opportunities in the worst of times and situations. Today, he is a managing broker and VP of New Development Services for Atlanta Fine Homes, Sotheby's International Realty. We talk about how to represent builders. Thanks for listening to the Jerry Metcalf podcast, where top real estate agents tell how they do it. This podcast was created for real estate agents across the country to come together, sharing ideas to take your, their, and our business to the next level. All right, everybody, it's the Jerry Metcalf podcast. And today we have with us from Atlanta, Scott Payne, a, our a broker in our office who specializes in working with builders and developers. Scott, thanks for being with us today. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. And I hope it's okay. It's casual Friday. So for during the podcast, anyway, I'm a little bit casual today. I forgot about casual. I've got my fancy, <laughs> right? And this is not going to, this show is going to release on Thursday. So. All right. Well, so it's a preview then for next casual Friday. <laughs> Um, so tell us a little bit today, we're going to talk about the difference between working with builders and working with everybody else or resell clients, which is usually what residential agents are doing. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about you, how, and why you got in the business. Yeah, I'll give you just kind of the short version of the story and it will probably segue into talking about builders and developers. But, um, the first part of my career was in, uh, construction and home building. And I graduated from the University of Georgia. I had a degree in real estate, believe it or not, that's actually a thing. Um, but I went straight into construction. I was a construction manager for five years. Um, I worked for a small private firm at the time. Uh, we ended up growing over the course of about 15 years, and I was able to kind of grow alongside the company. Uh, it was a good time in the market, you know, a lot of upward trajectory. So I was able to learn and grow as the company grew. Um, and then I moved from that company in the downturn uh, over to uh, Pulte Homes. And so I spent four years at a Fortune 500 home builder. It was a very different kind of environment, uh, but it was a great experience, another great learning opportunity. And then as the market was reestablishing itself in 2012, I felt like it was a good opportunity to pivot out of that world uh, into the world of brokerage. And so my goal was to leave Pulte and begin a brokerage platform that would support builders and developers. And I knew that as the market reemerged, a lot of the same people that I had great relationships with would be starting home building companies and understood that they were going to want to approach their sales and marketing differently than they had in the past. Um, They didn't want salespeople on, on staff. They didn't want sales managers and the overhead of a whole sales organization um, on their books. And so they were going to be looking to outsource those things. Um, That turned out to be true. Um, I did that on my own for about four years before I aligned with Atlanta Fine Homes, Sotheby's International Realty, 
And the goal there was just to find a best-in-class marketing brand uh, and a best-in-class marketing platform that could really help my clients grow and help me grow along with them. So that's kind of the short version of the story. So you started with another company for 15 years, and what exactly did you do for them? So the name of the company was Macar Homes, and uh, I began with them as a uh, project manager. So I worked on-site as a building superintendent. Um, I did that growing up. I worked on job sites. I worked on framing crews and drywall crews and kind of learned the the business from the ground up. So it was kind of a natural transition out of college to go into construction management. Um, So I did that for five years before I transitioned into sales and marketing and then kind of moved into some positions of leadership with that company. Um, eventually ended up as a division president for their Carolinas division. And um, so that's kind of how the, the transition from construction to sales and marketing happened. Wow. And then, of course, the Great Recession. And then Pulte for four years. Yep. And from Pulte, and Pulte, you were in sales? Uh, yeah, I was. So I did a couple different things there. I moved to Charleston as a uh, one of the market managers for their sales and marketing operations. So I oversaw uh, both Pulte and Dell Web Brands. Um, very soon after I joined that company, they acquired Syntex Homes. So two very large home building organizations that were merging. I got asked to take a job to help um, develop and manage the merger and integrations of the, of the two sales operations between the companies. Um, so I worked on that for a year. And when that was done, I moved into a role as the national vice president of sales. Uh, which was, uh, I lived here in Atlanta, home office was in Detroit, so I was commuting from Atlanta to Detroit, um, also managing the National Health Center in Phoenix, and so it was a a turbulent time, uh, but a lot of fun, um, a lot of really, really smart people at the company, and so we had a chance to really develop some some great systems and some great processes, and I got a lot of exposure to a lot of really new, fresh ideas, so it was a great experience for me. Wow, and then... You come into the crazy world of residential real estate agents who are contractors, not the employees of builders. What did that look like? Because now your role at Atlanta Fund Homes is you are sales manager slash head of development or help everybody. Because I think there are a lot of questions around who is Scott Payne? What does he do? Let's get that cleared up. Okay, sure. Yeah. So, you know, I I came to this company as... um, uh, Vice President of Developer Services. And so my, my role when I moved into the company was to manage builder developer business. So I had a lot of existing relationships, um, but the company needed a little bit of expertise too. Um, we're the number one new construction brokerage in Atlanta by almost 40% over our next closest competitor. And a lot of people don't know that. They don't think about us as a new construction brokerage because of our reputation and name in, in the brokerage world. Um, but we do. We do a lot of it. Um, and there are a lot of people here that do new construction. And so that's what I came here to do is to help kind of put some, um, make sure that our agents had a resource. So if they had a relationship with a builder and developer, how do we turn that into business for them and for the company? And how do we support builders and developers? Um, and then, but I have a lot of leadership, sales leadership in my background. And so as we expanded um, the Buckhead office to three brokers from two, I was asked to take on that role as well. Um, and so I am a managing broker, and so I work with agents every day, like, you know, you and your team and the others around you in the office to help, you know, give them advice and input on a daily basis, but also help them to think about, you know, how they grow their business and grow their career. Um, and I do have that from my past in the home building world. 
Uh, but you touched on a very interesting thing, which is my background uh, was one of employer employee. And so the people who work for us, myself included, we were employees. So this world of independent contractors is a little bit different. You know, you go, go from having policy that you can set and enforce to suggesting to people how they might want to attack something. <laughs> exactly. And I would wonder, I mean, in that, and we'll get into the topic is really going to, we're going to delve into working with builders, but I think yeah. this is relevant in understanding that is being from that world and be, you kind of came from the builder mindset and builders come and hire us as agents and we're agents traditionally and most of the time not working with builders. Mm -hmm. So let's start with that perspective to give agents a perspective listening to the show. What was that like? What is the difference between an on-site salesperson that's employee at Pulte and an Atlanta working, not Atlanta, and a real estate agent working for a brokerage? Yeah, so there are really kind of three layers to that, not just two. So it's one thing to be an on-site agent working as an employee or a captive um, agent for one particular builder. And, and that does feel a lot like an employee-employer relationship. There's policy and procedure that you follow. You've got set guidelines for just about everything that you do. Uh, we're not making contractual changes. We're not, you know, we're just enforcing the policy that's in place. We've got our product and our processes and, you know, consumers need to fit into that process if that's going to be the builder that they choose. Um, you have the general brokerage agent, which it's a very different mentality. You know, you're uh, on the listing side, it's very, you know, it's more transactional. You know, you're developing that relationship with your seller client, but then when you're dealing with agents and their buyer clients, you know, you're shifting back into transaction mode. You know, what are the deal points, negotiating the best deals for our, uh, for our seller clients. Um, and then you have new home agents that work for a firm like ours as a general broker. Um, and so we do a lot of things. You know, when a, when a company comes to us, they generally need more than just a salesperson to sell their home. Um, they're typically looking for some strategic input. They're looking for guidance and direction on, you know, not just pricing strategy, but home content. So what goes into the house, um, whether it's a single custom build or a neighborhood of, you know, 15, 25 or 100 plus homes, all of those things need to be thought through. Um, but I'll tell you this, that, that the thing that the builders, I hear most commonly from builders, their complaint about agents that represent them is they, they feel like the agents that represent them are acting like a buyer's agent. So you're presenting an offer to a seller, but trying to convince them why the buyer's offer is a good one. And it's tricky because as a new home agent, even though we are representing the seller, we can't count on the buyer's agent to fully understand that process. So we do have to act in some ways like a buyer's agent when we're talking to the buyer. They make decisions on a lot of different things, whether it's the area, the neighborhood, the home plan, the design choices, financing programs, and so we have to find out what's most important to them first, how much they know about that situation with the current builder, and then be able to facilitate that sale forward. But then when we go back to our builder client to present an offer, you've got to make sure they know who you represent here. I'm representing you. I'm looking out for your best interests. And I think these are the things that um, will help get you across the finish line. Well, I think to help, because I think that's, that's a great learning point for all of us just in negotiating in general is kind of a self-awareness check. When mm -hmm. you explain this, the agent working 
exclusively for an agent, the agent is really there just to enforce policy almost. Be yep. nice, customer service, and enforce the ground rules that we have already set. Mm-hmm. And then you have a builder engage with a broker or a, you know, a traditional brokerage and you come across agents who are in the mindset of, okay, we got to get the deal done. This is what they want to do. And it almost feels like they're being asked to acquiesce as opposed to the property being positioned to this is what it is. It is new construction. This is how it works. You want this. And what are, and it's almost like a difference in how it's the things need to be properly framed by the builder representative, whoever that is to engage the buyer. Yes. Not only on the buyer side that, so that you're right. That's important. I think the, the real key to being successful and having a builder client want to come back to you and use you over and over again is being able to give good, solid advice on the front end of the process. So there are times, unfortunately, where we intersect with a builder that's with another brokerage and they're unhappy for whatever reason. And they're thinking about making a change. And typically, it's, it's just a lack of sales. Just sales aren't occurring at the pace they thought they were going to. So you have to really start peeling back the layers of the onion to figure out why. And what I find a lot of times is that it's not necessarily the agent's fault, right? The, the builder forced some decisions uh, on the market that the market didn't want. And, but the breakdown is when the agent isn't strong enough to be able to communicate. This is what the market expects. This is, I understand that you want to get a million dollars for this house, but the market's only going to pay you $750,000 for this house. If you produce this house at this specification level, the price is going to be $750,000 regardless of what you want it to be. So you've got to have those kind of conversations up front with them to help them understand what the expectation is and should be. If you don't, that's typically where I see the rub. And then six months or eight months later, when the home is being delivered to market, the pricing's wrong and the agent comes back to the builder for a pricing reduction. And then the builder thinks that they're not doing their job. All they want is a price reduction. I've put out the work and really it could have, probably been avoided up front. Um, so when we look for builder clients here, we try to make sure that we work with builder clients who want that type of input, who are willing to receive it, and who want to strategize together on what type of product to bring to market. Wow. So what do you think is the biggest lesson for us? You know, there are a lot of agents in resale who really want to get into new construction. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that means you've got to understand the market up front. How do you predict and, and predict the trajectory of the market? Because you're building now, but you're probably going to sell it down the road. Right. So the answer is you can't. And I think that that's really a key thing to talk about up front. So, again, as you know, you're in an environment where you're trying to you're, you're coming up with market pricing today and you've got to be clear about that. That's this is market pricing today. And I've seen this a lot in the past where builders will say, well, you know, the market's been increasing at, you know, 4% per per year for the last three years. So we can, you know, project out that pricing should be, you know, four to 6% higher. It's only going to get better. And you can't do that. You have to make decisions based on what you know today. When you get, if you get towards the end of the process and you don't have the project, you don't have it under contract at that point, you have to make adjustments either up or down. And sometimes we adjust up, you know, we do find that, you know, the market has improved and there is an opportunity for that. Or if there are, you know, 15 to 20 houses in the neighborhood, you might sell the first few at one price and due to market factors and proven product, you can increase those prices. Which um, happens, yeah. happens pretty often. Yeah. yeah. 
because that was a big, that's a huge at Pulte and at McCarr. I'm sure that was a big part of the decision-making process. And, you know, you've got where you, you're hiring brokers to market and then you're hiring numbers people to yeah. analyze the market and analyze the numbers. Everybody's got their theories on, for example, what is it? The rate of un- unemployment is supposed to be a determining factor of market trajectory. Yeah. But right now or recently employment's been down, but it's not preventing people from buying. That's right. And unemployment's going back up or I mean, unemployment's going back down. Sorry. I'm getting my numbers backwards. But you- no, no, it's okay. You're right. right. It's a good, you know, those are the things right now. We, we've got a condo project in town that we're, we're bringing to market right now. And it's been in the works for almost two years. You know, it takes a while to get these things done. You know, so we've got this new thing now where, you know, these are 250 to $600,000 condominiums. So we've got a, a very specific target consumer group that we're going after there. And, you know, so now the banks are coming back and saying, well, you know, we understand everyone's moving to the suburbs, <laughs> you know, so we've got to help reconnect the banks to the, that target consumer group. These, these are not people who are going to sacrifice in-town living to move to the suburbs, okay? They are looking for infill opportunities. They're also not working in those employment sectors where unemployment is most rampant, like in service industries, hotels, restaurants, and things like that. So yeah, you have to look kind of sector by sector, always staying very, very focused on that target consumer group. And all the decisions that we make need to radiate from who your buyer is. Exactly. And I think that's probably what the builders are looking for as well, is agents that can do that and know how to deliver and observe that. What do you, what, um, back to my question earlier, and then we'll delve more into working with builders, but I would like to hear, because you did, you came from this world of, Built, like really truly the builder world mm-hmm. and evolved into this traditional brokerage world. Right. Do you find there's a difference in what is it in the mindset of each industry and the salespeople in each industry and what the strengths and weaknesses are of each? So, yeah, I think candidly, you know, the difference um, in, in sales agents, there, there is a little bit of a difference. You've got, you know, if you work for a builder, the traffic is being generated and driven to you for you. And when you're on your own in general brokerage, you have to do that by yourself. That's completely up to you. And so it is a little bit of a different mentality of, you know, what, what do I do to convert traffic versus what do I do to generate my own business and my own traffic. So you've got to go, you know, lower down in that pipeline and figure out I've got to drive people into that funnel that I can convert Versus if you work for a new home builder, you're figuring out how to take people who are there putting in the funnel and getting them out the other side. So, you know, it's subtle, but it's still sales. And in the end, you know, it's still, you know, we're, we're all only being compensated for what we sell, uh, whether you work for a builder or you work for someone like us. I think the difference is when you get into leadership and you have people who work in that world, in the home building world, and they do have a mentality that these are employees and we're going to do it my way and we're going to do it my way because this is the policy that I'm setting. Uh, that's never really been my style. I'm a collaborative kind of a leader anyway. I want to get people who work around me who are capable of making their own decisions, who are capable of giving me good input, and they come to me when they need strategy you know, and guidance so we can think things through together. And, and that mentality works really, really well in the independent contractor world too. And so some people can make that shift and some people can't, um, you know, and, and the advantage that I have though is working for a brand like ours with yeah. 
agents like you who most of the conversations that I'm having with our agents are affirming what they already think they know. They'll call me to say, Hey, let's talk this thing through. I ask, you know, what are your thoughts so far? What do you think we should do? And generally I'm saying, I think you're spot on, or let's just make this little tweak, you know, but we also get exposed to some really unusual things. We've got a lot of a wide client base and a wide um, range of agents. And so, you know, I do learn things every day and we've got to go, I'll call another broker if I've got a question about it, you know? So uh, just the the main difference there is we're guiding and influencing and trying to help and support versus dictating policy and things like that. It sounds like your style with agents is your style with the builders as well. Very right? much so. Mm-hmm. Strategic. What is the strategy? What is the advice? Dig a little deep, make sure we're on track. Um, and what do you find? Because builders need Builders need, like you said, they need someone who's strategic. They need someone who it just, there's a lot more at risk. Well, home sellers might argue, but you're talking about a builder's career. You're talking about more properties. You're talking about a longer process. You're talking about a lot more details that get a lot more complicated. Yep. And I think there's a little bit of a um, glamour around doing new construction as an agent. But what would you say if you're going to do re- new construction as an agent with a traditional brokerage? What are the things you really need to know up front and educate yourself on first? And, and so that's a great point. You would know this because you do new construction. It's not as glamorous as it looks. And a lot of people think that I want, you know, I want to get into new construction. I love new construction. What you love is that beautiful end product. That's shiny. And the way that new paint smells, right? Yes. It's <laughs> fantastic. But getting there is not always pretty. I think representing builders and developers, the one thing you know, that, that I always have in the back of my mind is how much risk and pressure is associated with what they do. They're taking out loans and in today's environment, it's private equity for the most part, it's not institutional capital. Uh, and that comes with a tremendous amount of pressure. And so if you're falling behind on your build schedule, then your interest meter is ticking. And so that means that you're profit is going down every extra day in that cycle, your profit diminishes. So the quicker you can get that done. We have problems now with supply chain. So material costs are going up. We projected one budget. It looks like it's going to be something else. So, and they take longer sometimes and then that costs more money and yeah, it's exponential. And and so the builders are watching their profits diminish as this is happening. They're also fielding calls from investors as this is happening you know, why hasn't it sold yet? Or why haven't you gotten the home to drywall yet? There's a tremendous amount of pressure on them. And it's a daily thing. If you want to be a builder, you have to just learn how to live with that. So as we represent them, we try to keep those things in mind, you know, how we have conversations with them about making sure the job sites are clean. You know, it's not a critical conversation. It's just, you know, can I get some help with the job site this week? Or could you send somebody by this week? It's not a complaining thing. We're collaborating with them. Um, it, it's just a tough position for them to be in. And, and there is always, always pressure on them. You just have to keep that in mind when you're working with your builder clients. Well, it's a great point. I think as agents, there's always a concern about how do I develop business? How do I retain business? How do I build business? In that position, you easily become either the target, even if it's not your fault, you easily mm-hmm. can become the easy one to blame. Because the investors will go after the builder, the builder goes after you, you're at fault. Or that's also an opportunity to be the solution. And what's the difference between the agent who ends up at fault and the agent who ends up being the solution for that builder? 
it, it's that upfront conversation, making sure that the strategy is right up front. So um, you, you, you hit on another thing I say all the time, which is sales cures everything. You sell a house, everybody's fine. The investors are fine. The builders are fine. You know, and there's, there's bumps along the road with clients when you're trying to finish a house with a client involved too, but sales cures everything. And so if you don't have sales, it begins to create all kinds of those friction points between investors and builders, builders and agents. So it really goes back. When I see it break down, it's because a, a, a strategic decision in the beginning was not properly assessed and made. So builders uh, are very opinionated. The types of personalities that are willing to take those types of risks also are very opinionated about product and about what they're going to provide. Um, they'll look at the highest data points in the market to come up with their pricing. So you've got to be very firm and really help them understand why their expectation level should be what it really should be. So you've got to be good at assessing that, not just taking what they give you and going straight to market with it. And to your point, you talk about how opinionated they are and how they, they're proud of their work and not nothing against builders. That's what makes sure. a good builder. Absolutely. But on the flip side of that, everybody's strength can be their weakness. Their, mm -hmm. Your own strength can turn into your Achilles heel. So how do you have that conversation when we're in such a competitive market with such a low barrier to entry that there are a lot of brokerages, a lot of agents that will just acquiesce to get the business? Mm -hmm. You're the, I guess you become the second agent. You, yeah. right? I'd rather be the second one in when the right. first one fails than go into it with a failing strategy up front. And, and it, like I said, it happens. You know, we, we do see that happen. Um, I've learned in my, in my career, first of all, I only want to work with people who are fun to work with and be around. I mean, there are plenty of people in, you know, our side of the business and the builder side that just really aren't that much fun to be around. So life's too short. It's a high intensity environment. Let's have fun while we do it. Um, but, you know, we do, again, it's just, it's really making sure that you have those conversations up front and you, you, there is business that you should say no to. Um, if it's not going to work, it's really not worth investing the time. Especially in new construction. It's expensive, not just for the builder, but very expensive for the agent. Yes. Time, effort, people, manpower, right. marketing. Yeah, you can put a lot of time into a project. And I think the other thing, too, is if you have something that you think might be a builder or a developer opportunity, something that it's a land or lot or something along those lines, you really need to sit down with somebody that understands if it is or if it isn't. Um, and I do get a lot of those things across my desk where someone has a, you know, a family farm or something that's 15 acres and it's in a good suburban market. But when you really sit down and look at the land, it's got, you know, a creek going one way and a power line easement going the other and the topo is untenable or doesn't have access to sewer. There are a lot of things that just looking at something on a flat piece of paper versus a proper market assessment will tell you, you know, it's not an, a builder developer opportunity. You know, it's best exactly. to single family farm or whatever. So when a builder comes to you, and this is the last question before the final three, I think. We'll see where this goes. <laughs> but it, so we, there's a lot of talk about upfront integrity, you know, competence. Mm -hmm. It's really what sums it up in that industry. And right. in, in doing those things, having those conversations, knowing those numbers, what would you say? Because a big one is upfront conversation and strategy, knowing the market. What are the categories when you come up with a strategy? Is there, when we come up with a strategy and we bring on a builder or engage with a builder, these are the, you know, are, what are the three things or are there specific points? There's pricing, 
there's market, there's timing, or what are they? Yeah, it, you know, I think it, it's marketing strategy is a big one. We haven't touched much on that. But, you know, in addition to pricing and, and home contenting, you know, what's going to go into the home? What level of specification are we going to provide to the market? Um, those things are not pennies. These are thousands and thousands of dollars. I think it's, what's interesting is that more commonly, we're on the side of the table saying you don't need to include that. You don't need to include that. You don't need to include that. And the way I explain it to them is the home is going to bring a price in the market. And the least comfortable conversation that we're going to have is when you come back to me and say, I've overspent the budget. I need you to raise the price because the market doesn't care if you overspent. The market's going to pay you what it's going to pay you. So we got to get that dialed in just right. Um, but I think the bigger thing, really, or not the bigger thing, but just as importantly is what is the marketing strategy? So if you've got a single individual home, what does your market strategy look like versus if I've got a neighborhood, what does my marketing strategy look like? Is it five lots or is it a hundred lots? And there is no one size fits all for any builder, any project or any development. So you really have to custom create the elements that are most important. Um, for example, social media is a good one. Um, it's a massive driver of business for us today. Um, I have a neighborhood right now where the number one provider of traffic is our social media program. We get a lot of unrepresented buyers through social media, but I have other projects where the story is a little more difficult to tell. There's nothing that's, that's extremely unique about it. And so the places where you have a bigger story to tell, you can dedicate more assets towards social media, just for example. Um, you know, and there are other places where we just need to, we need to create collateral. We need to create beautiful visuals. We need to put it uh, into the, the Atlanta Fine Homes, Sotheby's International Marketing Machine and just let it go to work, you know, where there's no, not a lot of additional charges involved or something like that. So, you know, really, it just depends, really thinking through that marketing, not overspending on that side, but also putting the, the dollars in the right categories. Is there ever a matter of, okay, we're buying the land now, we've got a zone, we've got a permit, we've got a, whatever that project calls for. Mm -hmm. Is there a also, let's push this ahead, let's hold off because of different components of the marketing or budget or whatever it might be that you look at and help people move their way through? Um, yeah, I would say, you know, there are, everything takes longer than originally projected. I don't know in my... You've had like 10 good quotes on Bill. We're going to have to like go dice them up. The exact, everything takes longer than projected. Always. Always does. And, and again, I, lo I love my builder clients. If you're watching this, but they would all agree they are incredibly optimistic. So I don't know how many times I've heard, yeah, we're going to, you know, we submitted for the permit. We're going to have it in three weeks. We're going to break ground the week following and we'll have it delivered in four months. So just tell the client it's going to be ready in five months and one week from today. Okay, you know, I know that's probably not a good idea. So they're, they're optimistic. <laughs> exactly. I think it's like perpetual optimism. Right. Keeps us in business. Or I think it's a Winston Churchill quote I looked up. It was like, the key to success is enthusiastically moving forward through, from failure, enthusiastically moving from failure to failure. Right. <laughs> That's optimistic, kind That's of. That's our business, right? We, you know, and, and we are too, you know, when we were, we're projecting sales absorption pace, we want to say 10 a month, no problem, you know, and the builders are going, That's not likely, you know, so we keep each other in check is probably the best way to put it. <laughs> I love it. All right, final three. Sure. Number one, what has been your best tool or resource for business? 
or, or your career? Um, mentors. Um, you know, I was very, very fortunate uh, early in my career to have some really tremendous mentors. Um, uh, my father was very in influential. I watched, he owned his own business. I really watched the way that he treated people. And I learned from him the way to treat people. Uh, you know, how you build relationships with people, how you treat people with respect, how you continue to build relationships with the people that you want to be around. So I learned a lot of that from him. And then on the professional side, when I moved out of construction into sales, um, I had a few random skills. I had a, my real estate degree was essentially a finance degree. So I knew how to sit down with people on my Hewlett Packard HP 12C and calculate payments. That's how I built trust. But I didn't oh, wow. know how to sell homes. And so I had someone who was the best face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball salesperson that I've ever seen who was very, very willing to mentor and help me learn how to do that. I listened to what he said, and I went and did what he said. It was as simple as that. And, it and what was it? Just it, the language of the sale. What does it sound like to talk to someone about something? You know, how do you you know, we used to train on critical path and sell on critical path. And then that, you know, really evolved into a more relationship driven um, uh, timeline analysis for the buyer of what do they know? What do they need to know? How do we figure out where they are and how do we match them with the needs um, for the product that we have? It was just listening to him and listening to him. You know, if someone gives you an objection, like these are the objections that can come up. Here's how you handle it. This is what it sounds like. You know, using the feel, felt, found method of I understand how you feel. We've run into a lot of people who have felt the same way. But what we found is, you know, and just being able to use some of those tools, just the language of the sale and the, some of those negotiation skills and being calm when other people are not. Um, those are just things that I learned from watching him. So mentoring to me was just the most uh, propelling thing, I would say, in my career, having good ones and listening to them. And what about back to your dad, how to treat people? Do you have any story that comes to mind of, of that just kind of really sat with you and lived with you moving forward? Yeah. You know, that? I think, you know, two in particular, he, he really, you know, he, he was in the home building industry. And, um, and so, you know, when I was young and working on job sites, he worked for a, a home building company um, but developed relationships with the investors who were investing in those projects. So I remember as, you know, uh, as uh, I was probably eight to 10 years old, having those investors come to him and saying, hey, we'd like to, we want you to um, start this project. We've, we own a neighborhood. We'd like to get you started in the business and then watched him kind of nurture those relationships. So, you know, having people actually approach you versus you having to approach them, I think it said a lot about the way that he, treated people, you know, and he had uh, a couple of partners along the way that didn't exactly work out, uh, but he handled it, you know, with class and dignity and uh, took care of his subcontractors and vendors, even when his partners weren't. So he had to, you know, dump some partners, but he kept his people and took good care of them. You know, even when it meant sometimes as a family, we had to sacrifice to keep that business going. Uh, he always took care of other people. Well, and the big, the big picture, the long, the, it's always easy in the short run make the easy decision <clears throat> but that decision in the long run how it you don't think it people really notice right or that it's really going to matter and then when you look back and you kind of made a lot of right decisions or just mm -hmm. by other people by doing the right thing it's interesting how 
even though people don't know they're paying attention, it seems to have the effect that they certainly must have been. Yeah, we're all prone to bad moments, but I think, you know, we look for patterns of behavior. I think people, whether they think so or not, they, they understand patterns of behavior in people. And, um, you know, I think that's what we look for, you know, whether we're bringing a young person onto the team, like you have done a lot of times in your past, you know, what is their pattern? It's not a single mm-hmm. individual, you know, problem or concern. It's what's the pattern of behavior? You know, are they doing it repeatedly or is their pattern really good with one minor, you know, thing that we can help improve on? So you're going to make a lot of mistakes as you're growing and learning. So it's okay to do that, provided that the pattern is the right type of pattern, you know, growing and learning. The only way to eliminate mistakes is just to eliminate being a person, which is really a solution. Right? It's not, a, not in my world. I, I don't have that option. What's your biggest advice to salespeople, yourself, other people on how to perpetuate or continue to improve in life and not, you know, we have these, but how do you make sure that trajectory is improvement always? Yeah, it's growing and learning and being open for new ideas. You know, really the, we are always learning. Um, you know, you and I were talking about right before we jumped on the podcast, just what this does for you to be exposed to so many people with so many different views on how you approach real estate. You know, and I know I would just reflect what you said to me, which was it's so eye opening to talk to people that have these perspectives that have been successful for various reasons. That's really critically important, you know, that we're open for those people that have good ideas and that we don't you know, think that that the end of our knowledge has arrived and the way that we do it is always going to be the best way to approach it. It's, it's a constant, continual changing and evolving process. What great advice. I love that you said grow, learn, and, and be open to new ideas. Yeah. Always learn. Our team, actually, one of our motto, mottos is learn, grow, and kick ass. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we can cuss on the podcast I like or, new I- or be open to new ideas. We'll, we'll change right. that. <laughs> Love that. Um, next question is book. What is a book that you have read that's really changed your life and or career that we just should not go on without reading ourselves? Okay, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to give you two. But the, the first one oh, is good. I love uh, it. by the same author. So it's almost the same thing. But uh, Simon Sinek wrote a book called Start With Why. And it is a tremendous book. Um, in that book, he talks about what he calls the world's most simple concept. And it's what, how, and why. And when you get to the why of what you're doing, it's your real turbocharge, your real superpower is why you're doing what you're doing. But most companies and most people don't know why they're doing what they're doing. And so he walks through how to kind of, how to unlock that and then how to leverage that. Unbelievable book. I won't break. I could talk for 30 minutes. On that this we should have talked about that because that the video, he's got his video that, that kind yeah. of made him known. Yeah. And he goes, Apple tells you wh- who they are, why they do what they do. Oh, by the, oh, by the way, would you like a computer? Whereas yeah. most companies say Microsoft this is what tells we you do. What they do. Right. right. And then you can decide between them and everybody else if you want it. Right. There's, um, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a great book. And then the, the, he wrote another book called The Infinite Game. Um, and I have to tell you, it was powerful just because of the content. But uh, I actually listened to that one on um, Audible. And so I don't love to read business books. I get, I read a lot, but I don't like reading business books. So I've, what I've learned is that Audible for me is a tremendous tool to get through business books. The best way to do He's really good at reading his stuff, but the infinite game, there are so many parallels in our company versus other companies in our marketplace here at Atlanta. 
And going through COVID especially, we didn't furlough or lay off or change a single compensation plan or bonus plan for a single person in our company. Not wow. one. And David's mindset around that was my people are more important than my short-term profitability. And you see companies getting in trouble when they become beholden to stockholders rather than their people. And so it's putting people first. There's so many parallels behind what he described and the way that our company operates. So it made it even more powerful for me. Uh, but it is, it's an unbelievably powerful book. So those two. So you gave a great example of, of Atlanta Fine Homes. And it's so true because decisions at the core and the leadership of the company, the how contagious that is, is just, is tremendous. As an agent in the company, I'm, I talk to David often, but not even every day, but you can, you, it, it's present. But in that book, what were some one take, like in that book, what was a um, tangible takeaway in the book that you could give us or something that he said? Yeah, let me draw, just draw another parallel back to our company. Just as, okay. as yeah, please. The, you know, the world that I come from, we talked about that earlier, private and public home building. And anybody that works in a corporate environment will understand this. You feel like you're in this constant state of financial forecast. So you forecast, you either make it or you don't, and then you reforecast. If you make your goals and your forecast should get better. If you don't make it, you're in this constant continual question and answer session as to why. And then you have to try to, you have to take short-term initiatives to the detriment of the long-term business success to make up for those financial gains. It's a constant pattern. When you're in it, it's just part of your normal life. But when you escape from it, you realize how detrimental it can be. Yeah. As a high level manager for our company here, we make one expense projection at the beginning of the year. I'm bonus based on profitability of this company, but we don't forecast profitability metrics here. We don't forecast our financials that way. David takes care of it. We are simply here to help support the engine that drives that profitability. So when we look at things like increase in market share, we have the highest increase in market share of any brokerage in our city this year, by far. And regardless of the fact that we're about 25% the size in terms of agents of the largest brokerages in town, we're the largest brokerage in the city for the first Huge. time in our history. It's unbelievable. We've had a 15% market share increase this year. We look at those numbers in the rearview mirror. We didn't go into it with a goal of gaining X amount of market share because when you do it that way, you can make expenses that are detrimental to this, the long-term goal of the business. And so we look at it the other way. How can we help and support our people? That drives the engine. That makes us profitable. It supports why we do what we do. Beautiful. I'm going to share with you. I just watched a video of he was talking to Arthur C. Brooks and he talked about just because you love him and I love him rewarding people on behavior, mm -hmm. not just results. Yeah. And then that gets the results, but there's a lot more to it. Yep. But beautifully said, I almost may edit what I just said out because what you said before <laughs> that is just, wow. What a great way to put, to put it. Last question. If there is one thing you would hope we all remember from this interview and nothing else, what is it? Find a good mentor, find people that you can learn from, emulate them, continue to grow, stay open for new ideas. Regardless of where you are, what you do, who you work for, what your role is, that will always serve you. Say that again, if you can. <laughs> I don't know if I can. <laughs> I want everybody to hear it. That was beautiful. Thank you. Absolutely.
Thanks. Thanks for a great interview. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This was fun. Everybody, Scott Payne, Atlanta Fun Homes. Good to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry.